want me to put it? Do you want me to move this? Oh, hello! Somewhere? What a beautiful stool. Oh, well, that came back from Africa years and years ago. I'm in the home of Pat Phillips in Vancouver, and it's the 25th of September, 2009. And I'm looking at this wonderful lady. She's very sharp looking, by the way. Lovely hair. Um, I have some questions for you, and I haven't ever met you before, so it's a pleasure to meet those that have served with us for a long, long time ago. And Pat, I wanted to tell you, I'm sure you don't know this, but you you know, when you went, there were many that went after, and now we've ha added it all up to over 12,000 alumni with over 30 million hours of service. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> it kind of chokes you up it thinking is. about of all those people and all the time you spent there. So we're both kind of thinking about that and all those people that contributed and how much we appreciate you. So Pat, when did you go on to service with us? Uh, I went to India as a CUSA volunteer in the fall of uh, 1968. My goodness. What was happening in India in 1968? Well, in 1968, they were keen. They just started family planning. And actually, they were one of the first countries. Although most people think that we're the first country, but they were one of the first countries to really get involved in family planning. And in fact, when we had some family planning orientation here in Vancouver before going, and I was from Ottawa, uh, no, I think I joined in Montreal. In Montreal, okay. And, uh, but we came here for orientation, and we had to go to an unnamed clinic down on 4th Avenue, I think it was, incognito at night to go to a family planning clinic. My goodness, now 1968. that's... 1968. And there you were going... September, it must have been August. I think it was August, because yes, we. I think it was August. I could, it was either August or September. 1968, yes. and in Vancouver, Canada, Yes. you and had to go incognito to a family planning. Yes, there was no title on the door. There was nothing to say it was family planning. I don't think it was in the phone book. And in fact, when I was in Montreal, CUSO had sent me these books about family planning. And I was working in Montreal on a pediatric ward. And uh, first of all, I thought they would never select me because I didn't have enough experience, but I'd already lived in Africa for two years and I traveled in Europe for a year and I'd worked a year in the north. So I guess that's how they you know, decided I had a little bit of experience. That's quite a bit. <laughs> so I got these books, and I think I sat up all night reading them, because I didn't know there was a population problem. I mean, how would we know, oh. really? Yes. Because uh, I didn't really realize there was such a population problem, but I was very keen on the job, and it was to work on a mobile family planning team and there would be, I think initially they wanted eight teams, but I think in the end there were five or six. And I was selected for a team that handled what was then known as Tamanadu and Mysore State. And we went up into a bit of Hyderabad State. 
And then another volunteer went to, to was stationed in Bombay and traveled Maharashtra, Gujarat, all that area. Then another one traveled from out of Bhubaneswar in Orissa and went to Calcutta and covered that area. And then there was another team in Kerala that traveled in those areas. So the job sounded fabulous because you know, even if you would normally go to a job in India, you wouldn't be spending all but four days a month traveling to rural areas where they had, where missionaries had these small hospitals. The biggest hospital we had in our area was the famous Valor, which is world, you know, known all over the world, and is huge. I mean, it has. Bachelor of Science in Nursing, PhD in oh, Nursing, okay. I think. It's, it did a lot on leprosy. It was a huge place, but most of the places we went to were very small. And were you, were you on your own there? No, it was a team. Okay. And the reason they wanted, the reason really I think they selected QSO or Canadian nurses to go, even though we didn't have family planning experience, because the job wasn't to insert IUDs or do any of these things. It was to go to these mission hospitals and give education. So I worked with a counterpart, Sujata Demagre, and she was a public health nurse, was trained in Valor, uh, spoke Tamil, a bit of Telugu, uh, was brought up in English. And then we had a driver for the van, okay. and some of the time we had a social scientist. So we would go to a hospital and introduce ourselves because these hospitals were all part of the Christian Medical Association of India. And the Christian Medical Association of India, I think at that time, they said that I think they had 10% of India's beds, hospital beds. Oh. So the I think they began to feel that if the Indian government was focusing on family planning. They could do their part because lots of women and children, in fact, a lot of mission hospitals really focus mainly on women and children. And especially in these rural areas, of course, they would focus on that group. So, uh, so they got involved, and through the project, the hospital could get teaching, they could get money for IUDs, they could get money for sterilization, they could get supplies of pills. All those things came, and we were part of the package. So we would go out, visit, find out what was their most appropriate time that we come. We would find out how many staff they had, how many days we think we'd have to be there. Because, you know, to tell you the truth, although I thought I knew nothing about family planning, I didn't even know there was a problem, most of the staff in these hospitals didn't have a clue that there was, A, a problem. And a lot of the nurses, and even the midwives, hardly ever talked about human reproduction, so they didn't really understand it. It was just something... I mean, they, 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 it was just unspoken. So Sujata and I, we tried, we learned. I mean, it's so stupid to think that they sent us idiots out there. <laughs> that we learned that the, the most important thing was to try to teach these nurses, mainly we focused on nurses and auxiliary health nurses and midwives. 
really about human reproduction. How you get pregnant, for goodness sake. Your cycles and all that. Yeah, and, and how you get pregnant. What, how? <laughs> because even though they, they did midwifery, they yeah. didn't really understand how they got pregnant. My goodness. So, so this is what we did, and as we went along, we just developed it on the, on the fly. And we changed it and tried to make it very, very simple because it is a complex thing to understand. And even the hormonal cycle and all that, you can't make it too complicated yeah. or they'll never, they'll never get the idea. And then we would have all these audio visuals that we'd get from Delhi, from the, I think it was also a Christian organization that developed a lot of audio visual aids where you could open the kit and insert an IUD and show how it went right into the canal and where it went in the body oh, yeah, yeah, and that. all that. Because, of course, the thing is, if the healthcare staff do not understand, then when a woman comes back and says, you, for, you, you educated people are inserting worms in our women, you can very well understand why. Because if you see the IUDs they used to use, they were like this. Yeah. And they went in straight, but when they went in, they went in shaped like S's, you know. Like a worm. And if you're going to expel it, you will expel it, you know, the first month in a cramp. And it will come out when it has blood on it, looking like a worm. Oh. But you see... People think that because you're uneducated, you're stupid, but they're not stupid. It's, it's nobody has explained to them. Yes, what it is and how yeah, it works. Yeah, so we learned so much. That's why you were the right people to go, because the right people would go into the field and adopt the program and change it. Yes, yes, except I must say a lot of a lot of us from the West, we like it structured. Yes. We want to have the lessons all there. We want to know exactly what it is that we're going to do. But I certainly learned through that project. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. How old were you? Do you mind me asking? Well, I was older than your average volunteer because I'd been to Europe a year, worked a year, uh, went to Africa for two years, was in Montreal for one year on a pediatric ward. Mm -hmm. So I must have been in your 28. 28. Something like that. And did you replace Nancy Garrett? Did, I mean, well, eventually, but that was different from my volunteer job. Okay, all right. Because she's the one who told me about you and... Uh, and wanted, you know, was very keen on me meeting you. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 And her. Yeah. So, India in 1968 and India today. Totally different. Would you I've be been back have you? many times. Many okay. times. Because I worked in Nepal and Bangladesh. Okay. I worked in in Bangladesh with uh, Kuso, and also in Nepal I worked with Sita. But I, I went through in, I went back to India many many times, and even I went and spent a year ten years ago. I went back to Bangalore, stayed with Sujata, volunteered with the Tibetan group in Bangalore for six months, and then had to go to Sri Lanka and renew my visa. 
because you can't have a visa longer than six months. And I saw such a change then, I could hardly believe it. And I want to go back next year, but I'm almost hesitant because now you've got overheads and highways and all this. When I went to India, they even told us to take toilet paper. Yes, I remember. And things for two years because there was very little available. But you see, that was the challenge. And, I, and thank goodness I have a stomach of iron <laughs> and my favorite food is Indian food. Even South Indian or North Indian, it doesn't matter. I never once craved Canadian food. You Anything. And, you and I have to go to an Indian restaurant on Broadway, a really, really good South Indian uh, a restaurant. We're going to go, okay? Okay, we'll go. You, Nancy, and me. We'll yeah, go. Yeah, we'll go. Because <laughs> the Idlis and oh, all that. Oh, yeah, all that. Idlis, dosa, upama, all that sort of thing. In fact, when Sujata and I used to travel around, because we'd often have to travel all day to get to way out to Mangalore and up the coast into Udipi, all these small places, uh, and we, w we got to know where the best place was to get doses at 11 in the morning <laughs> and where were the best sweets we knew all the sweet places i love indian sweets most canadians Find it can't stand boiled sugar and milk they can't stand Benda, it pera. oh they can't stand it so we um you know you will i i mean never again will a volunteer get a job like I don't think that exists anymore. What you experienced no. is just... And every hospital was different. Some were run by Germans. Some were run by Americans. Some were... Because they were all under the Christian Medical Association. I mean, they got they joined the project through them. But they were all different denominations. And they all had different... Different... Um, you know... Some of them we had to pray every morning before we started. Um, one, the nursing superintendent was trying to get me married off to the medical superintendent who was from <laughs> England and had been there quite a while. <laughs> An English them, old man. <laughs> one of them, uh, no, actually he was quite young. Was and he? I said, no, get me out of here. <laughs> anyway, and so they were all very different. So you see that also added to the interest. Uh, I hope your people that are listening to this won't get upset, but I remember going to one and sitting, and usually Sujata and I would stay in, uh, we wouldn't stay in the nurse's hostel because usually it's eight to a room. They would either have a stay with the nursing superintendent or the missionary would have an extra bedroom or something like that. And then usually we would eat with the nursing superintendent or something like that. And so at the dinner table, this, this doctor who was a foreigner and who was there uh, said to me, well, what church do you go to in Bangalore? Of course, I never went to a church in Bangalore. I figured if I went every day for the month, why did I have to go on the four days off? <laughs> And so then Sujata hit me under the table, and she said, oh, she goes to St. James's. <laughs> and so we had all these funny oh. things. We were either laughing, working very hard, because, you see, 
we would strategize after we'd met these people and then they'd agreed that you come back a certain month of the year they're always they always you have to go at their convenience or they're not going to listen to you or make their staff available to come so we would get the months out and chart them all in the pre visits the training and the post visits and so uh, so we would sort of every night try to think of how we could influence some of the staff to become more mm. concerned and what things they could do like we're not asking them to change their beliefs or to or to do anything but if women come in to um, a clinic and it's for women and children and they're going to be sitting there and usually waiting two hours for the doc to see a health worker whether it's a doctor an auxiliary health worker you know you you could have posters up you could have even somebody give talks on the different methods yeah you could there's a lot you could do that wouldn't require more staff mm -hmm. but that would just start to get people thinking, thinking. Right. and you know what was really clear to me the majority of women did not want more children but it's not in their hands that's right my mother says that not in their hands at all yeah. in fact I remember going to it because when I went to Bangladesh I helped a uh, also a Christian doctor who was based in Dhaka and she wanted me to help her set up the family planning like the CMA she didn't know where you got the audio visuals mm. she didn't know so I said well I can only stay for six months if you pay my room and board I'll stay for six months and try to get you all these materials and come out to the hospitals with you and use the materials with the staff to show them how to use them even though I didn't speak the language, I you, you know you can show them. Yeah. So you and went to I saw women that yeah. you know were having eight and nine children. They didn't want more. They were only then under the age of thirty. And the thing is, they're all poor. Most of these hospitals, you know, uh, gave service to the real poor. You know the wealthy would go to Valor, although Valor had all stages, mm -hmm. but I mean the larger hospitals, but most of those rural hospitals, they were there because there was a need for health care in the rural areas. Wow. So your service in India, then you went to serve? Well, no, then I came back to Canada and mm -hmm. then CUSO wanted someone to go to Bangladesh to do a study of could, new vo could health volunteers uh, would they be appropriate for Bangladesh? And it was just after the liberation. Oh my goodness! It was goodness. a very scary time. Yes. And so I stayed six months, and I um, and I recommended. I think I recommended that healthcare workers were not appropriate at this time, because I talked to the Dutch and all the other people that had volunteers. And the thing is, at that time, the Bangladesh government thought that the volunteers were bringing materials and supplies. Yes. And you know, we don't. We just bring the body. The training, yeah. You know, there has to be a facility there and equipment and things for, for the volunteer to use to implement whatever it is they're going to do. Like if you're an agriculture worker, you're not bringing a tractor and yes. money for seeds. I mean, you're not bringing the big bucks. Yes. 
And they wanted the big bus. So, uh, so at the time, uh, I just based it on experience of Dutch came over, 10 of them came and within four months, I think seven had gone home because it was very difficult in those days. It was, I mean, we had curfews at four o'clock. There was still uh, skirmishes, and you'd see all the old burned equipment on the roads. And so it wasn't the best time. But while I was doing that, I met this, because you see, if you're trying to find out whether they want health care workers, you have to look at all the health institutions to see where there might be a need. And that's how I met this Dr. Mina Malakar. Okay. And so... So I did that for... Six months, and then I went to university oh. and got a degree in, in a Bachelor of Science in Nursing. And then I went, and then, where did I go? Then, um... Then did you work with CETA? Then I worked with CETA. Then I got, we got a job with CETA for four years in Nepal. Oh, in Nepal? And yeah. what were you doing there? An auxiliary health care program in the rural areas. Oh, my goodness. Health, you know, rural health posts and CETA's... Uh, commitment was to build two campuses, one in the far west, Sirket, one in the far east, Dunkuta, and to build in the, I think it was only in the east, they built six rural health posts, and those health posts had accommodation for staff, the health post and accommodation for students and so we also did, um, I spent three months doing research with staff from the Institute of Medicine to survey those villages and try to do a study before and maybe if you looked at them after 10 years to see what influence you would have on certain basic things of healthcare like do they have latrines? Where do they get their water? water? How much do they smoke? You know, all those very, very, I'm talking about very, very basic, mm -hmm. whether that's changed. Because if you go to rural areas anywhere in the world, the major problems are water. Yes. And, you know, lack of latrines, yeah. lack of potable water. Yeah. Or they have to walk half a day. In Nepal, most people have so many kids because they have to walk half a day to get water still today well so all these all these um ser serving these organizations when you came back to canada did you continue as a nurse what did you do uh, in your career when i came back to canada then i worked with the unitarian service committee okay and i was responsible for like um well, all projects, and all of those projects in those days were basically all the same. They focused on women, education, water, meaning latrines or pumps, tube wells, and uh, health. You and know, basic things, and agriculture. In Canada? Was that so, in Canada? No, they had programs in Indonesia oh. and Bangladesh. Okay. So I, since I also worked in Indonesia for two years with CARE. Oh my goodness. Then I had, I was the representative in Ottawa for Indonesia and for Bangladesh. But I would visit those countries every uh, year and look at all of our projects and try to improve the type of projects mm. that were being written up and envisaged because 
my and, and Unitarian idea was that you, these projects have to be eventually self-sustaining. Yes. And so you have to always look at how you can, uh, they can generate something. Or, and, and definitely the Unitarian Service Committee always had local representatives. They weren't foreigners. There were no foreigners in the field. Wow. And also I covered Nepal because I'd been in those countries, so I covered again Nepal, Bangladesh, and Indonesia. But this is a, it sounds like a lifetime career in service overseas, no, talking with really. her. So after, after Unitarian, you come back and you serve So in after Unitarian in Ottawa, I then got a job with Acuso again in Ottawa oh, okay. on a different project a healthcare project that was producing materials for CETA for their foreigners who go overseas. Okay. And they produce booklets and stuff like that and training, pre-travel training oh, yes. of foreign diplomats, foreign people going to these countries. Wow. <laughs> and then after that, that went on for four years and then I decided it was time to come back to Vancouver because uh, I'm from the West, Calgary originally, and my family is in Vancouver, so I decided I better come back to Vancouver. And then I got a job with the Kidney Foundation, okay. also working with local groups of people in various parts of this part of BC that are ex um, kidney patients okay. and are trying to do assistance for kidney patients in their community. Wow. But not operations or dialysis or anything, but helping them to have a group that they can communicate with like-minded people or people that have the same problems, the same disease, the same problems, you know. Wow. And are you retired now? Now I'm retired. Are you? <laughs> and I'm more busy than when I ever worked. I bet. Volunteering, doing all kinds well, of Well, I volunteered a lot. Mm. Uh, but this year I'm not volunteering mm. uh, because I volunteered, first of all, one-on-one -on -one a school program. And that was mainly um, reading with children. I initially did it for three or four years at Sexmas School over on 57th near Maine. Okay. And, uh, and it's an old, old school, and most of the children are from... All over the world uh, now, right? Yeah, they're mainly in, in Indo-Canadians yes. or Chinese or Korean or mm. Filipino. And the key is that a lot of children, if they haven't mastered reading by grade two, then they're almost handicapped forever. Yeah, and a lot of them didn't have, their parents were so busy as new immigrants trying to survive that they didn't have books at home, they didn't go to the library, they didn't, you know, maybe some of them did, but the majority didn't. Hmm. So they didn't get enough time reading and practicing reading, and, and so That's I had, I think, uh, five students yes. twice a week same students 
and we would just keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. So when you go back in your life and you go back to 1968 in India, what is one special... First of all, I have to say I'm really amazed that you kept in touch all these years with Sujat. Sujata, yeah. Sujata. And uh, the lady in Nepal that I worked with is probably going to come here. In, uh, well, she comes every year to visit her, her niece, who, when I lived in Nepal, was six years old. Wow. And she's now a pathologist. And she was in Rhode Island, and now she's just moved to Arizona. So they want me to go to Arizona in February for her birthday. And I really want her to come here, but the times of year she comes here is the worst time, time here. here. So I'm going to try to see if she couldn't extend her visa and come in, like, March. When it warms yeah, up Yeah, not, d because, um, although it's very cold in Kathmandu in the winter, yeah. but they're not used to the rain, rain and rain. They're damp. And damp, yeah. it's too damp. Yeah. So... 1968 India, and then uh, Bangladesh, and then other times with QSO. What do you take away from something like that? So, you know, I'll just tell the viewers, I'm sitting in your home, and I must say it's eclectic. I see things from India, and I see things from Africa. And right. I think, I see a, a woman that's, yeah, there's beautiful Omar Khayyam kind of things on the wall there, or Indian, no, Indian... Um, beautiful p small paintings and I think a woman has and a Buddha and I think of this wonderful lady uh, actually a, a lovely beautiful lady out in the world learning all those things and it seems like you've brought part of that continues on in your life today because I see it around you those special memories and those special times I think that's really wonderful that that uh, people like you get to bring part of that world. So when you sit with an Indian woman like me, I think you're more a part of India than I am because I never have lived in India, but my ancestry is from mm -hmm. there. And you've seen these small villages and Indian women in the fields. Yeah, and which are changed now. I mean, it, well, so the thing is, I have a friend here, and she's always saying, when I also volunteered at the Van Dusen Botanical Gardens. Same thing, school programs with little kids, showing them how seeds travel or this or this. And so we go to Van Dusen Gardens every week, we, and we go out to UBC to the Botanical Gardens and this and that. And she doesn't like any change. And, you know, I think a lot of us don't like a lot of change. And, but I keep on telling her, it's changing whether you like it or not. It's true, isn't it's it? It's changing. It's changing in India. It's changing. I mean, you go to, I went to South India 10 years ago to Bangalore, where when I lived there, I would never walk around in a salwar kameez because they did not like North Indian dress. There's a lot of, there was a lot of animosity between South and North. Yes. And they did not, only little girls up to the age of, you know, would wear the long skirt with a little top, and then they might wear a salwar kameez. But when they got a certain age, that had to stop. So I never wore a salwar kameez in the South. I wore a sari. 
I didn't wear a sari in Bangalore because Bangalore was quite Western in many ways. Yes. But whenever I went to the hospitals, I always wore a sari. I got so I could do my house cleaning in a sari. Dusting. Look? I would use the palu to dust. Oh my <laughs> but, gosh. But, you see, you go to Bangalore 10 years ago, and all the young girls are wearing tight jeans, and they're wearing t-shirts, tight t-shirts, to the and showing a bit of the midriff. Well, you see, that you no, you had to have your top had to go down over your bum to your to your knees, right? Yes. With slits up the side, and you had to wear the scarf. Yeah. Because that's part of the outfit. Oh, not anymore. But now, you see, so the dress has changed. And even Sujata, who never wore a sour kameez, now only wears it because, of course, it's more appropriate for travel. Hey, Pat, do you still wear saris? Can you wear a sari? I can still wear a sari, but I have only one left, and I doubt I could get into the... The top. The top. <laughs> I'm going to wear one on December 9th. <laughs> well, I have a beautiful Mysore silk crepe purple which is in style now yes dark dark purple with a very small band of gold you know it's very um, very elegant subtle, yeah and subtle and i think that was the first lovely sari i bought and i think i paid i got it in mysore where they're from and i think i paid 110 rupees and now it's probably 3,000 rupees. <laughs> Speaking of India today, they even kiss in Indian movies. Now. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, it's you over. Wouldn't, no, you wouldn't see that. No, no way. So, but villages are still extremely traditional, as you know. Yeah, yeah. Very. You know India more than me, so when you say, as you know, it kind of well, makes no, me smile. Well, no, I mean... Today, yeah, generally speaking. Generally speaking. You I know? went to Pakistan and I saw small communities and yes, I agree. Uh-huh. But uh, I just want to say on behalf of all of us at QSO, BSO, as you know, we've merged. I thank you for your service. So many years later, please be a part of our 50th uh, anniversary. We're going to be having a beautiful event in Ottawa in uh, June two, 2011. Uh-huh. And uh, the kickoff for the event is December 4th at UBC. Oh, so, we'll, nice. So thank yeah, you again yeah, for everything you've done. I don't know why I get so emotional.